Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. I'm really excited to have James Clear on the show today. James is an entrepreneur, writer, and weightlifter. He writes about behavioral psychology, habit formation, and performance improvement. In other words, he writes about how small habits can change our lives and society for the better. In his writing, he blends inspirational stories, academic science, and hard-earned wisdom, a combo that I really, truly appreciate, which is why I reached out to James, and I'm really excited he's on the show today. Hey, James. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Cool. I thought we could talk a little bit, before we dive into all the work you're doing, about your actual own personal development as a human being. What were you like as a kid? Were there any like themes in your early childhood, like in terms of your interests, in terms of, you know, the things you're attracted to in your environment that could help explain how you became who you are right now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, looking back, you can kind of connect the dots a little bit. I don't know that I had any of these ideas when I was going through the process, but I was definitely really curious as a little kid. My parents tell a story all the time about how I, you know, I would sit like in a little backpack. My dad would carry me around and I was, you know, one, two or whatever. And I would just be staring people down the whole time because I was just trying to like soak everything in. And I really enjoyed reading um, and stuff. But I think you could divide my childhood and adolescence into two different categories where I spent most of my time. So the first is like what I would call just learning and exploration. So I liked school. You know, I was good at school. I enjoyed the process of learning and reading and everything. So that was kind of like my nerdy side. You know, in fifth grade, some friends and I created this robotics club where we like built Legos and made a little conveyor belt and would write computer programs and, you know, to make the conveyor belt run and stuff. So it was... sounds like you would have fit in really well at my undergrad, Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> you would have been one of our friends. Okay, so you'll see it. Maybe, maybe. But 
I was always surrounded by people who were smarter than I was. So I was like soaking up the stuff that they were doing, but I was never the like mastermind behind it. And then the other part, so that's like the nerdy part is one side. And then the other half was athletics. So my dad played minor league baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals. So growing up, I wanted to be, you know, professional baseball player and all this stuff. So I ended up playing for 17 years. I played all the way through college. And that kind of half of it was sort of the same thing. I was always surrounded by athletes who were better than me. And so I was learning a lot and picking up a lot for them. But I was never really, you know, the mastermind on the field or the, you know, the top athlete. I was never the fastest or the strongest guy. but By combining those two things, I ended up learning a lot about myself and I had a really serious injury in high school. I got hit in the face with a baseball bat and I ended up being air cared to the hospital and fractured both my eye sockets and couldn't breathe on my own. And I had multiple seizures the next 24 hours and it was really long ordeal. I couldn't drive for the next eight months. So it was like a really long road back. And five years later, I ended up being an academic All-American my senior year at college. And so the road from being injured and not being able to play and not being able to drive a car and not being able to play baseball for a whole year, all the way back to making a team and becoming an academic All-American, I learned a lot about small, consistent progress, building, you know, making like a 1% improvement or a you know small improvement each day, embracing these like daily habits that kind of gradually accumulated to me getting back on the field and then becoming, you know, an active player and then becoming a starting pitcher. And I didn't really have a choice other than to do things in small chunks because that's all I could handle in that process back. So athletics was the other part of my adolescence and childhood that definitely taught me a lot. And now I get to talk about something that kind of combines both of them. You know, behavioral psychology can be super nerdy and interesting and very all sorts of stuff to learn, uh, very mentally stimulating. And you can apply it to all sorts of things in life, not just like productivity habits and work habits, but also health habits and weightlifting, which is what I do now, sports psychology, mental and physical performance. And so that's kind of how those two worlds combined and and got us to where we are now. I kind of am interested in applied psychology, right? Like how do we take psychology and make a practical for everyday uses, for everyday experiences? How do we kind of bridge the gap between theory and people who are doing really exciting and important research and practice and, you know, and people who are like, you know, using those ideas to go build something or do something or and I try to be that bridge as best I can between those two worlds. Yeah, I think you do a good job of it. Thank you. Uh, are you self-employed at this point? Like you don't have a boss, yeah. right? So I've been self-employed for five years. Congratulations. For the first, thank you. For the first two years, I tried a bunch of ideas that, you know, didn't work and I didn't know what I didn't know. I kind of view that period now looking back on it as the period where I incubated my skill set, so to speak. You know, I didn't know what WordPress was, how to build a website or what an email list was or uh, how to program or code. And so I had to teach myself like all those things as I went through and, you know, how to do web design, how marketing and direct response copywriting works. Why would someone sign up for a product or an email list? Why would someone buy it, buy something? And that actually is what got my start in the psychology is I started studying consumer psychology to figure out, like, why would someone buy anything if I'm going to create this business? And that led me down the rabbit hole of behavior change and behavioral psych. And then I got really interested in that particular area. So have you ever had a boss in your life? I've never had a legit job, if we want to put it that way. I mean, in high school, I had summer jobs, of course. And so I had bosses there. And then when I was in graduate school, I worked at a medical practice in between my first and second year for that whole summer internship period. So whatever that is, three or four months. And so I had a a boss then. So, you know, I'm familiar with like clocking in and clocking out and getting a paycheck and stuff. But as far as like after I graduated and had my degrees, I've never had like an actual job since I got out of grad school. What are those degrees? Because that's not something you talk about a lot. 
Yeah, my undergraduate degree is in biomechanics, so it was mostly chemistry and physics. So I was like a science guy in undergrad. And oh, then, come on, uh, you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then in grad school, I got my MBA. So I was focused on like strategic healthcare management at the time, which is why I worked at that medical practice. And I took a couple classes in the School of Public Health as well, because that's what I thought I wanted to get into. And I still really, you know, really find medicine and health fascinating. But then I, you know, I started writing about behavior change with regards to health. And then that's, you know, evolved into what jamesclear.com is now. And to kind of close the loop on this entrepreneurship discussion. So I, for the first two years, I tried a bunch of other ideas, experimented with things. One of the best pieces of advice I got was try things until something comes easily. So probably tried five to 10 ideas over that two year period. And then, you know, two or three of them started working better than the others. And I was like, oh, okay, so I'll stick with these and, you know, learn from trial by fire and learn from experience. But through that whole period, as I was studying behavioral psychology and consumer psych, I was writing about habits and what I was learning, like on the back end in private, I was writing about, you know, oh, these behavioral psychology ideas could apply to my weightlifting habits or my nutrition habits or productivity and writing habits. And that document got to be like 60 pages long. And I was just a huge wimp and didn't publish anything because I was like, oh, it's not ready yet. People won't like it. It's totally, you know, different than these other business ideas I'm trying. And eventually, November 12th, 2012, was the first day that I put something up on jamesclear.com and I tried to take my emotion out of it and said, all right, I'm not going to judge how good or how bad it is. I'm not going to worry about like what my reputation is and how people feel about it. I'll just try to publish something every Monday and Thursday. And so I stuck with that for the last three years. And then, you know, within a year that had taken off and became my full time. I shut down the other business ideas, which were profitable and making money. Two of them were but they weren't making a ton of money and jamesclear.com took off. So I've been doing that full time for three years now. So yeah, there's this common theme in your writing about kind of taking your emotions out of it and keeping, staying focused on the process and not the goal and stuff like that. So, and this dovetails with your own life. So you certainly try to walk the talk and it's very clear. It's something you try to do. Yeah, I think that's really important, actually. You know, it's hard enough to have an opinion, to have a good, sound, well-researched opinion. But if we're being honest, anyone can have an opinion. You know, like you can write something uh, fairly easily. The friction to getting your idea out is, is relatively low. But to be a practitioner, right, is much different. And to, I think, I hope that it makes my writing compelling and accessible and believable and trustworthy because I realize how hard it is to put some of this stuff into practice. You know, like there are areas where I succeed, like I do a pretty good job with writing consistently and I do a pretty good job with uh, lifting and working out consistently. But there are other areas where I struggle a lot. Like one of them that I'm working on this year is nutritional habits. And it's not that I eat terribly, but I rarely cook as many meals as I should. So it's, it's really a cooking habit that I'm trying to build. And that's been a struggle for me in the past. Sleep habits. So I, I have this rule where I don't cheat myself on sleep. But last year, and I've been really good about the last six months, but the six months before that, I had this really hard period where I wouldn't cheat myself on sleep, but I was staying up way too late working on stuff till midnight or 1am. And then all of a sudden, if I'm not going to cheat myself on sleep and get eight or nine hours, well, that means I'm sleeping until nine or 930. And you know, we have this weird, this is a whole separate conversation about sleep, but we have this kind of like guilt associated with our culture where even if you're productive, but you sleep in, then you're like lazy. But I didn't like that because I do perform better in the morning and I feel better about the rest of the day if I'm up at, you know, 6.30 or 7 and I'm getting into my work by 7.30 or 8. And so anyway, those are just two examples of things that I feel like I am pretty good on and two things that I struggle with. 
And I feel like that makes the writing better because I realize how hard it is and I have to experiment with different ideas to try to put these things into practice and make them work. And, you know, anyone can share an opinion or a solution, but to actually put that into practice day after day in your own life is much harder. For sure. And when you say getting into work, do you mean like going to the office in your house? Right. Yeah, I have a tent. <laughs> so I, I work out of the home office. <laughs> Just to clarify. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. You see, so you live a life that a lot of people want to live, right? And so you are an inspiration to a lot of people. And you, I mean, you try to talk about how you got to be the way that you are and things that you can do. Something that you've influenced me and my best friend, Elliot, who's a philosophy professor at Barnard, we intentionally did an integrity report this year. Oh, cool. Um, and like you're changing our lives too. <laughs> so thanks. Um, yeah, you so, bet. That's great. Yeah. I really liked the process of doing that. Integrity is one of those interesting things where like if you were to ask anybody, like if I were to ask you, do you do business with integrity or do you, you know, do you conduct your work with integrity? Well, everyone's going to say yes. No one's going to say no. And I actually don't think people are like lying. I think they, they actually believe it for the most part. But what happens is that there are all these situations we find ourselves in where your boss asks you to do something or you, you know, really want something to happen. You want this business to get built or you want to, you know, to write a book or you want to succeed in some fashion. And you come up with this just this once excuse for this particular circumstance because the situation is different this time. And you do that five, 10, 15 times throughout the year. And then you turn around at the end of the year and you're like, oh, you know, maybe I found myself in a different place than where I would have said if you were to just say, what are your values? What do you live by? So for me, the integrity report is just a way to sort of make myself stand up and be publicly accountable. And more importantly, make those issues come to the forefront more frequently, just so that I'm at least thinking about them so that I don't let those just this once exceptions pile up, you know, year after year. And suddenly I'm running my business in a way that, you know, it's just a little bit removed from maybe what I would have done if you were to have me write my values out on paper and write exactly what I, you know, what I envision. Yeah. And in addition to constantly reflecting on your life and your goals and where you are, you also quantify a lot of your stuff, I noticed. You know, in one report I read, you quantified how many times you went to the gym last year, for instance. And that's a big finding in the science of motivation, right? That constantly quantifying these things is very helpful. Yeah. You know, those your speed is signs if you're driving down the road and there's yeah. like a little radar and it'll show, you know, the speed limit is 35, you're going 42 or whatever. And it, you know, put it up there. So that sign is really just a feedback loop, right? It's the, it quantifies what's happening, gives you an accurate measurement on this is where you stand and you see it. And so you, that feedback acts as the trigger, the stimulus for your next action, which is to slow down. And, you know, research has shown that those your speed signs tend to decrease speed by about 10% on average, and they tend to stick with you for miles down the road. But what I thought was particularly interesting is that they continue to work. So even if you have already seen a sign like that and you come across another one six months later while you're driving, it will work again. It will decrease your speed by about 10% on average. And I think the measurement is a really key part of that. You know, there are multiple things going on here. It's automatic for one. So it doesn't require you to do anything. It just gives you that feedback really quickly, you know, on its own. But to come back to this measurement idea that you brought up, I think it's important to quantify and measure the things that are important to you so that those numbers can act as a trigger or a stimulus for your next response. I don't necessarily think that tracking the number of workouts I do in a month or tracking how much weight I lift in each workout or tracking the number of articles I write each month or in a year. I don't necessarily think that that one little practice is going to change you know, my life entirely. 
but maybe it'll provide a five or ten percent bump in my motivation or in my consistency or in the work that I do. And if I can accumulate some of those bumps in areas that are important to me, then I think it's important that I, you know, that I spend the time to quantify and measure. And the other thing is it actually isn't that hard to measure that stuff. It doesn't really take that long. It's just foreign to us in a lot of ways. And so we're not used to it. But once you get into it, like tracking my workouts now, I mean, it takes me 30 seconds while I'm at the gym. It, it's like nothing, you know, so it, to me, it's almost like, why wouldn't I do it at this point? But in the beginning, there's this, you know, this friction or this tension around starting something new that can make it feel weird or a little bit of a hassle. Just you made me fell this question I want to ask you. Do you do weightlifting competitions now? Uh, yeah, so I haven't done any in the last year, but I was on an Olympic weightlifting team in Ohio before I moved to North Carolina. No way. We, yeah, we, we talk about a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have it on my list to like move into talking about workout and weightlifting habits. You know, I wasn't that great, but we had some really good lifters. Holly Mangold, our best female lifter, lifted at the Olympics in London in 2012. Our coach, Mark Canella, was the Team USA coach there in London. Drew and Bob two, were two of our top 10 male lifters. They were both top 10 in the country. So I, anyway, my only point is by doing that process, I learned a lot about what it looks like to show up consistently and wor- you know, work out, what it means to be a part of a team with like athletes of that caliber. So yeah, it was, it was a great experience for me. And I haven't done any competitions within the last year or so, but it is on my schedule to do something once I, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, to do something here in the near future. Very cool. So let's get into the nitty gritty of habit formation and changing habits. So you've written sure. a lot on this topic. First of all, how long does it take really take to build a new habit? Yeah, the answer is, I mean, you hear these like kind of urban myths and legends, right? Like it takes 21 days or it takes 30 days or, you know, whatever. Those seem to be the two most popular numbers. But the answer is the answer everybody hates. It depends. But what scientists found, there was a research study done at University College London on this. And so you can basically look at it as a spectrum. And it depends on the difficulty of the habit, how, you know, large or complex it is. It also depends on, you know, a bunch of situational and environmental factors, like what you have around you, what kind of influences do you have, what kind of people do you live with, uh, what kind of environment do you live in. But on the short end, really easy habits that, you know, like drinking a glass of water at lunch might take you 18 to 21 days, somewhere, somewhere, you know, three, four weeks, something like that. More difficult habits like going on a run three miles after work each day or something that might take you six, eight months. But the span was anywhere from 18 days to 250 some days. And the point of this, I think, you know, on average, it was 66 days to build a new habit. So that's kind of the, you know, what the the headline was, the research study on average takes 66 days. But I think on a more practical level, what we can say about that is, it's going to take months for these new behaviors to be built, you know? And so rather than viewing this as an event, I think too often we view building habits and new behaviors as like a finish line to cross. It's like, oh, I built the habit of working out. I'm done now. Or I built the habit of, you know, writing once a week for three months. I'm done now. I have that habit. But it doesn't really work that way. And, you know, it's more of a something that you continue to show up to, right? If you if you built the habit of working out and did it for six months and then just stopped and never worked out again, well, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really help that much. So I think viewing it more as a process rather than an event or as a, you know, as this ongoing system that you're going to commit to rather than this finish line that you're just going to try to cross after 21 days or 30 days is probably the best way to approach it. That makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people complain about how their motivation wanes. And, you know, you really talk about how what separates those who reach these goals versus those that don't. There's actually a bunch of things that separate those that don't. One is identity, right? Can mm. you talk a little bit about the identity aspect? 
to this? Yeah. So I call this identity-based habits is the mm-hmm. phrase that I use for it. And the basic idea is, you know, I think you can kind of say that you can imagine behavior change or new habits is kind of like an onion. And on the outermost layer of the onion is the results that we get, the performance. So these are the things that we're always looking at, right? Let's double revenue. Let's increase our productivity. Let's lose 40 pounds. Let's, you know, whatever it is, it's the result on the outside. And those are the things that we set our goals around. Then on the next layer in, that's like our actions. And, you know, if it's take the weight loss example, since it's a common one, if the goal is lose 30 pounds in four months, then the action piece might be work out four days a week or something like that. Well, usually the conversation kind of stops there. We think about the goals we want. We think about the steps we need to take to get them. And then we say, all right, we just we just need to do it. And if we don't do it, then it's because we didn't have enough motivation or willpower or the circumstances weren't right or, you know, whatever we chalk it up to. But I would say that there's also a deeper layer, you know, one layer in from the actions that we take. And that layer is the identity or the beliefs or the mindset that we have. And that identity, to give you an example, so let's take the weight loss one. So if the goal is to lose 30 pounds in four months and the action is to work out four times a week, well, the question I like to ask is who is the type of person that could get that result or who is the type of person that would do that thing? Well, the answer is the type of person who could lose 30 pounds in four months is the type of person who doesn't miss workouts like that would be their identity. And so rather than focusing on the outcome or the result or rather than worrying about the action, let's focus on building the identity of the type of person who could achieve the result that you want, whether that's writing a book or learning a new language or losing weight or whatever. And if you have that identity, then you can trust that the actions and the results will just come as a natural consequence of becoming that type of person. No, I love that. And a reason why I love it, it's a nice compliment to the research I've done on the importance of falling in love with a future image of yourself. Paul E. Paul Torrance, the famous creativity researcher, wrote a beautiful article called The Importance of Falling in Love with Something. And he argues in that paper that identity is the most important thing we could do to help realize these future images of ourselves. It's what carries people through. I don't know if you're aware of his famous longitudinal study where he followed I'm people not. up from the 50s and 60s, like in elementary school, and they're still following this cohort 50 years later. And he, wow. found, that, he found that that falling in love with the future image of yourself part was like the number one best predict, predictor of adult creativity, better than IQ, better than like every measure of academic prowess he could throw in front of them. So huh. it's a really cool study. And what you're showing is it's a nice compliment to it because just dreaming is not the only part of the equation. There's also the doing part, but what's going to get you to, to do the doing. And it's mm-hmm. you know, really having part of your identity as well. That you're the kind of person who's going to work hard even when you don't want to. You know, what's interesting like as, I, uh, as I think about I didn't know about that study. It's very fascinating. So then, okay, so let's say we leave that thesis, right? This idea that, we, okay, let's become the type of person who can, you know, achieve these things or let's focus on building that identity or falling in love with the future you, as you put it. Yeah. All right. So then the question for me is, all right, the next step after that, so it's, it's good to say that. So then how do we get to the, the practical side, right? Like how do we put it in practice? And what I find is that those two layers, those two inner layers I mentioned, so the actions that we take and the identity that we have, they're kind of, they feed off each other. It's not a one-way street. And uh, I had a coach in high school, a basketball coach, who said confidence is just displayed ability. And I remember hearing that and thinking, oh, that's interesting, right? Like a lot of the time people will tell you to go into something like, oh, you're going to give this public speaking thing, like just be confident, believe in yourself, right? Or you're going to be shooting a free throw in a basketball game, just be confident, believe it's going to go in. Well, like that's true. On one hand, confidence is great. 
But the way that you actually build it, the way that you actually believe it, that it's going to happen is by proving it to yourself, right? Is by displaying your ability. And then you're like, yeah, of course I'm confident in myself because I know I've actually done it before. And so for me, it's like, all right, how do we build that little, that feedback loop where you can actually prove that you're doing something that the future you, it's getting you to the future you. So you're doing something you haven't done before, but you're proving it to yourself. So you're confident that you can do it and you have the identity. I think the answer, at least the best one I've come up with yet, is for you to do it in incredibly small incremental steps, which is why I believe in these like 1% changes, small habits, and so on. It's just a big enough improvement, just a big enough step or a small enough step, I guess you could say, toward the future you that it is moving the needle forward, but it's also small enough that you can achieve it and it will give you a little bit of a confidence boost, a little bit of an identity shift where you say, yes, I believe that this is something I can actually be and achieve. And then you just repeat the process a thousand times until you actually get to the future you. Yeah, I mean, this is quite groundbreaking stuff, and it can be applied to a very wide swath of activities. I don't see you writing too much about dating, for instance, but do you ever have these these mm. dating coaches? Do they ever contact you, like, you know, wanting to apply some of your ideas to, like, approach anxiety and stuff like that? Uh, interesting. No, I have. I Well, I have. I, I have had a couple relationship experts, or uh, yeah. what are they, what's the term now that they use? Anyway, but I, I've had apply. a few maybe that have reached out, but that's not uh, that's interesting. I haven't even thought about applying it in that way. One area that I was surprised that I have a lot of readers who are uh, into finance and trading and you know and whatnot. And I think that a philosophy of one percent gains of compound growth certainly applies to them. But also this idea of like showing up consistently and just like building what's the identity that you want as a trader, rather than being reactionary to whatever happens in the market. And letting that shift your actions and choices, how are you focusing on building the identity and the consistency around you know what you want to become? So I mean, it really can apply to any sort of goal you have. But you know, again, you are you say some counterintuitive things. You say that focusing on goals can actually limit your long term growth, for instance. And you say focus mm-hmm. more on systems. And is mm-hmm. that right? Or falling yeah. into systems? Well, you know what's interesting about that? I think so. So I'm not going to say goals are useless because I don't think that's mm-hmm. true. I think what goals are good for is setting direction for yourself and, you know, developing a sense of clarity and a sense of purpose around where you're moving. I think you see this a lot. I think as we get older, maybe we get a little bit better at it. But I think you see it a lot in particular with students or people as they graduate and start their career. They don't have necessarily really pinpoint clarity on what they want. And I don't think that's like a knock on them. I think that sometimes that's just a a consequence of where we're at in our lives. Like you need this exploration period throughout your 20s sometimes to figure out like, hey, what am I meant to do and what really speaks to me? But my point is, it's really hard to make a lot of progress if you don't have a clear direction that you're moving in. So goals can be good for that. They can be good for setting a direction. However, if you know what direction you're moving in, having a goal doesn't really do a whole lot for you. It's the system and the consistency and the work that you do day in and day out that makes the difference. You know, like take, uh, so Alabama football just won the national championship again. When they started their year, they probably all knew exactly what their goal was, right? Like, okay, the goal is to win the national title. There's no debate about what direction we're moving in. But you could effectively say they could just put their goal on a shelf and not even think about it for the next nine months, year, and all they and if all they worried about was their system that they committed to at practice each day, would they still make progress? Would they still potentially win? And I would say that, yeah, maybe they would. You can kind of divide systems and goals like this. Like 
if you're a coach, your goal might be to win the championship. Your system is what your team does at practice each day. If you're a writer, your goal might be to write a best-selling book. Your system is the writing process that you follow each week. You know, you could say if you're an entrepreneur, your goal might be to build this successful business and your process is the sales and marketing process that you do each week. So we all have directions that we want to go in, but the way to get there, the way to walk that path is through a system. And so that's why I feel like systems are more important than goals. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So what's a big myth of passion and motivation that you see constantly being perpetuated? I don't know. There are probably a few. I I would say the one thing is just that like we often do this guilt trip or this shaming around not having enough motivation or not having uh, enough willpower. And we act like, oh, that's the reason you don't get to your goals. But in truth, motivation is very fickle. It's, It's probably not best. By definition, a habit is something you do consistently. And motivation is something that ebbs and flows. So you don't want something you're going to do consistently to rely on something that ebbs and flows. So, you know, there's a popular, there are a bunch of studies on implementation intentions, but uh, one of the ones I like to talk about is about exercise. And so they had three groups. First group, they said, we want you to track how often you exercise over the next two weeks. So they're just the control group. Second group, they said, we want you to track how often you exercise. And we're going to show you this motivational pamphlet and video on the benefits of exercise, why it promotes heart health, blah, blah, blah. So this was the motivated group since we're talking about motivation. Then group three, they gave the same presentation to. So they were equally motivated. And they said, we want you to track your exercise over the next two weeks. But we're going to have you do one other thing. And that thing is write down, I will exercise for 20 minutes on this day at this time in this place. So they had to state a very specific implementation intention about whether or not they would work out. Well, the results came back. The cohort, about 31, 33 percent, somewhere around there, worked out. Okay, so about one third of them worked out over the next two weeks. The motivated group, the motivation essentially faded almost as soon as they left, you know, like within a day. And 31% of them worked out over the next two weeks. So equal to the control groups and motivation had no impact whatsoever on their long-term behavior. And then the third group, 90% of them worked out over the next two weeks. So it was like triple, double or triple what the other motivation group was. And so implementation intentions or commitment devices, all all these different strategies we have, those can lead to better long-term behaviors. And I think that the myth around motivation is that motivation is what we lack to build the habits that we want. And my argument would be often it's about environment design and structuring the world around you to promote those good behaviors and prevent the bad ones. And that makes more of a difference than motivation. I think a lot of time we look at people like, oh, they have six pack abs. They must be so motivated. I wish I had the willpower you do. And even if those people don't know it, they often live in an environment that promotes those behaviors. They're surrounded by people who also promote those behaviors and do the same thing. So they're surrounded by a supportive environment with similar ideas. And we can chalk it up to motivation and willpower, but often there are other forces at play that make those good habits easier and those bad habits harder. And just to give you some examples, you know, like let's talk about breaking some bad habits. You know, if you, uh, I, I wrote about some of these in the article earlier this week that I was working on. If you have a gambling habit, you can put yourself on the banned list. You can volunteer to put yourself on the banned list at the casino or on for an online gambling site. So now all of a sudden, it's not about having the willpower to not do it like, oh, I just don't have the motivation. I don't have the willpower to resist the urge. Well, structure the environment so that it makes it easier on you rather than harder. 
you can set up automatic savings plans to save more money for your emergency fund each month, right? So like now it's not, oh, I wish I had the willpower you did to not go on a shopping spree and save money for my emergency fund. It's like, no, design the environment to make those behaviors easier for you. Any way that you can structure the world around you to make the good habits easier and the bad behaviors harder, I think is much more powerful than relying on motivation or willpower. I really like you made that point and also the importance of the culture. My dear friend, Amelia Lati studies this concept uh, called Sisu, which yeah, is really, I know, really, big, really big in Finland. And I think you wrote an article about her work on Sisu and she was really excited that you wrote that. But I think that speaks to the systemic sort of cultural influence on mm. something. I mean, in that culture in Finland, you know, having that extreme determination is a really good thing, right? It's like, yeah, it's something we encourage. But our American culture is kind of interesting. We say that we really value that, but then we really value talent when it comes down to it in terms of like mm. standardized tests and focus and all that stuff. Anyway, just a couple more minutes, you know, we'll wrap this up. I really like this thing you wrote once. You said, personally, my goal is not to reduce life to the fewest amount of things, but to fill it with the optimal amount of things. And I think at the end of the day, you know, when you talk about how the central question you're interested in is how can we live better? I think that kind of really gets to the center of how we can live better in a lot of different ways, especially in my own field of positive psychology, that's, that would agree with that. How have you been trying to do that lately in your life? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think this year, one of the things that I'm focusing on is kind of this ruthless elimination of the inessential. And one of the analogies I like for this idea of, you know, I'm not trying to get to the least amount of things, I'm trying to get to the optimal amount of things, or I'm not trying to get to the least amount of responsibilities, I'm trying to get to the optimal amount of responsibilities. You know, I'm not not necessarily trying to avoid work or to live a Spartan lifestyle that makes me feel like I'm sacrificing and not getting to enjoy, you know, the world around me. But I am trying to be cognizant of the fact that there are many things that creep into our lives that we don't necessarily need or that don't provide nearly as much value as maybe we assume on the surface or don't really make us better people for those who live around us or for ourselves. And so the analogy that I like to use with this is one of a rose bush. You know, I think we often assume that as humans, we are like trees. We can grow wider and we can grow taller and throw more responsibilities on because we'll just add some more branches. And, you know, we just continue to go up and up and bigger and bigger. And that's a natural consequence, especially if you're an active, busy, interested, intelligent person those things are going to come into your life, right? You're going to have more opportunities. It's just how it is. The longer you live, the more people you'll meet and the more you know opportunities you'll come across. So if you don't trim those away, then you are going to try to force yourself into this tree situation where you need to get bigger and bigger. The problem is human beings are not really like trees. We have this finite amount of energy and amount of space in our lives. And so I think that, you know, for a plant analogy, we're more like a rose bush. In order for a rose bush to fully blossom, you have to trim away some of the buds. And many of those buds are actually good. They could become a flower. They could blossom in some way. But if you don't trim them away, then the few remaining ones can't flourish. And so that's kind of where I'm trying to get to at this point is saying, which areas of my life, which buds do I want to flourish to the fullest degree? And in order to do that, there are going to be some things, and in many cases, they're good choices, they're not wastes of time, that I'm going to have to say no to in order for me to get to that optimal amount of stuff. And yeah, and so that's kind of where I'm, I'm at right now. I love it. And that leads to the, my final question for this interview. So what other things matter in your personal life other than habit formation? How much is happiness and well-being uh, and yeah. other things? I don't want to be, ask you a leading question, but tell me what else matters in your personal life? 
Sure. Yeah. So I think one of the questions is sometimes this conversation, I don't know if this is what you had in mind when you asked the question, but sometimes the question around habit formation is like, well, if I spend all my time building these habits, do I ever get to enjoy anything? Do I just become a robot? Do I just become automated and just worry about like, oh, system after system? And my argument would be, no, it doesn't have to be that way at all. The question that we need to ask is, where does the value come from? So, you know, sometimes there are things in our lives that there's a lot of value just in being a beginner, you know, like having a beginner's level of knowledge on politics in the upcoming election. Maybe you're not into politics, but just being able to have a conversation on it and at least know the lay of the land. And, you know, you spent 30 minutes of your time figuring it out or, you know, three hours of your time, some beginner level of investment that can be really useful. There are other things where the value comes from mastering that behavior, you know, like take uh, exercise, since this is an example we've used throughout this interview. Does the value of exercise come in doing 30 minutes or three hours of, you know, work on it and over the course of a year? Probably not. There's probably not a lot of value to be gained there. But in by showing up consistently time after time, then you can really start to reap a lot of benefits through that, you know, mastery, I guess. Writing is another one where I think there's a lot of benefits to be gained from mastery. And it depends on the person, depends on your skill set, for one, what your strengths are and whether those align with the thing that you're trying to master. And it just depends on your, you know, your interests and the, the conversations that you want to have. But for different people, sometimes the value will be at the beginning of the curve. And sometimes the value is going to be in mastering that thing. And so if the value is at the beginning, don't worry about building a habit around it. Don't it just, you know, get the knowledge that you need and then move on. And as far as the place for happiness and serendipity and surprise in my life, I try to create situations where I can get a lot of that. You know, I'm fortunate because I can set my schedule in, you know, and have a successful business running and so on. I try to do three to five international trips a year, mostly just for photography and in kind of creative exploration. And so, you know, one that teaches me a little bit about creative habits and stuff and how you can't really plan sometimes those, you know, those creative moments. But two, it just, you know, just allows me to increase my surface area for luck and for interesting things to happen. So I certainly don't think that I try to plan out all of my days, although I do have some of those what I would call like anchor tasks that my day revolves around. And then the rest of it is, you know, kind of filled in by hopefully some good and exciting stuff. I love that answer. I guess my question was more personal, though, about the other things that matter to you in life other than like goals and habit. And I know the answer, though, like I've read your integrity report. And so you mentioned things like you want to increase your social connectedness, your service, and things Mm -hmm. like that. And those are things that aren't necessarily related to goals. I mean, they're goals, but you're not doing them because you want to reach a goal. You're doing them because you want to savor the moment, right? Mm. Yeah, there are uh, like this year in particular, I'm focusing on doing a monthly dinner series and then hosting maybe one or two retreats throughout the year that are just there because, you know, I feel like it will add to my social well-being and add to my ability to, you know, connect with other like-minded people and so on. And not, you know, I'm I'm not selling anything. I'm not looking to get some business result. I don't have an agenda. I just, you know, spend some time surrounded by other interesting people. So yeah, there are things like that. Obviously, the weightlifting and photography are kind of two of my personal hobbies, I guess I would put that are like closely related, but not about goals and habits. Yeah. And then, you know, spending time with friends and family, I try to make multiple trips home and stuff like that. So there's there's plenty of things that, you know, I spend my time on that don't necessarily get measured or quantified, you know, like we talked earlier. It sounds like you're really living a full life, living a good life. And thanks for all the great work you're doing, James. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. It was great. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. 
I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can go to thepsychologypodcast.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H E L P dot com. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.